Evening, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Ezra, and we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4 tonight. If you need a Bible, Richard's up and he's got some Bibles in his hands. Turn to Ezra, right after Second Chronicles before Nehemiah. Little short guy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> See that? Build down the shoe height. It's a little bit smaller. <laughs> Uh, before we get to the study, Women's Prayer Breakfast is this coming Saturday at 9 a.m. At 6 a.m., the snow is supposed to start. <laughs> so um, by 7.30, Lori tells me if it looks like they're going to cancel it, then it'll be uh, posted on the um, Facebook that they're not going to be having the, the Women's Prayer Breakfast on Saturday morning. By the looks of it now, it's, I don't think it's looking so good, but hey, you know, God can hold it back and, you know, just... I'm glad it's going to be okay for Sunday. That's all I'm saying. So um, It's always hard to, to tell when you're going to cancel or not going to cancel. And, and you watch the news. Oh, we're going to get 10 inches of snow. And it bite, you know, passes us. Or then, you know, it's, oh, we're not going to get anything. And, you know, 10 inches of snow. But anyways, uh, Ezra chapter 3 and 4 tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight and the privilege that we have to gather together to open up your word Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here to teach us what your word says. Instruct us in all things that we might live lives that are more pleasing to you, that we might honor you with everything that we do in our lives. Bless our time, Lord, we pray. We commit it to you. Give us not only information, Lord, but application, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last time together, if you recall, we pointed out that how God stirred the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to let the Jews who had been in captivity go back to the land of Israel. Amazing, we saw how God called out Cyrus by name 170 years before he was even born, that this would happen, that this man was going to be born, going to be raised up, and he's going to uh, speak forth the truth of God's word that, that, that uh, the Jews will be able to go back to, to their land. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 45, 1-6, that a man named Cyrus would come on the scene and would build Jerusalem, let the captives go, and did they he did and they did and and uh so much so that Cyrus gave back the the uh, the stolen temple treasures to go with them and ordered all the Jewish neighbors to help finance the trip home and uh and then in chapter 2 we looked at uh, a list of those who returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel so we got the the call to go out they got all the stuff from the temple everything ready for the new temple to be rebuilt all the people came and now we're in verse one of chapter three they're ready to make a new life and we read and when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem now we know why they were in captivity they turned their back on their spiritual life and you can read about their, their backsliding, and, and we looked at it. We were in the book of Isaiah, then we did Jeremiah, and we saw all the ways in which they turned their backs on the Lord, even though God sent prophet after prophet telling them to stop the direction they're going, turn back, repent from their idolatry. They would not do it, and so they were taken into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar had come in. He had uh, ruined their city, its walls, and their temple. 
Well, now the end of the 70 years have come, and it says the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were the cities the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Very exciting. I mean, they're, they're, they're really returning to rebuild uh, the ruins, and it's really a picture for them and for us how God is in the business of rebuilding. God is in the business of restoring that which was, was ruined. He, he likes to restore spiritual lives. Life's ruined by sin. God restores and rebuilds. Now, the seventh month here in the Jewish calendar is equivalent to our September, October. During this month of gathering uh, together, they had three great festivals. The Feast of Trumpets uh, on the first day, the Day of Atonement on the tenth day, and the Feast of Tabernacles on days 15 through 21. So these feasts, they were great times of joy and rejoicing. And we read that the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Uh, I like that. That really is the theme of chapter 3. It, it's unity. If you want to accomplish great things for the Lord, then it takes unity in the church. It takes being on the same page, catching the same vision for the church. People gather together as one man to Jerusalem. How did this unity come about? Really through humility. Humility before God and the offerings that they made and humility between each other. Because before there can be unity, there has to be humility. Why? Because humility brings about unity. That's why there cannot be unity if people are always looking for their own will, their their own rights, their own agenda. That's what I want to do. Well, you can't have unity. There'll, There'll only be unity in the body of Christ to the degree that there is humility. And secondly, humility brings about liberty. I think that the humble person is the freest of all because he or she is completely free from protecting their rights or promoting themselves or, or polishing their image. No, the, the world says promote yourself and the Lord says humble yourself. The world says watch out for number one. The Lord says esteem others better than yourself. The world says claw your way to the top. The Lord says the way up is down. Paul writes this in Colossians three twelve through 13 Therefore, as the elect of God... Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you all also must do. Humility. It's a key to unity. Because these people were gathered together as one, they were now in the proper position for power, for God to work in a mighty way. It's like there in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples were in one accord, in in unity, that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. You know, the reason I believe the revival is so often missing in our country today is because rather than unity, we we see division and we see fighting and fault-finding among the people of God. It ought not to be. I read a story about two men who were standing on the bridge. One was about to jump off and the other was trying to talk him out of it. The man asked the jumper, so are you a Christian or a Hindu or a Jew or what? The jumper replies, a Christian. man says, small world, me too, Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox? The jumper answers, Protestant. The man replies, me too, what denomination? The jumper says, Baptist. The man replies, me too, Southern Baptist and Northern Baptist? The jumper answers, Northern Baptist. The man replies, me too, uh, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern Region? Well, the jumper replies, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. The man replies, me too. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. The jumper answered, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. 
The man says, die heretic, and pushes him off the bridge. <laughs> See, if you want to accomplish great things for the Lord, it takes humility. Paul writes in Philippians 2.3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Not the same as yourself. Not, uh, you know, a little bit better, but, but better than himself. Well, verse 2 we read, Then Joshua the son of Josadak and his brethren the priest and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and his brethren arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. I love that. As it is written, they searched the scriptures to find out what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And when they found what was written, they did what was written. There was no controversy. There was no difference of opinion. See, they not only returned to the land, they also returned to the law of Moses. They returned to the word of God. Bible was their authority. It didn't matter the ideas or the opinions of individuals. It didn't matter. What mattered was what the Word of God says, what the Bible says. They they read it and they did it. They, like James, were were doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. Verse 3. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. So there was a, a lot of hostility from the people around them. And they're really living in fear, but that, but they made it all the more, they were all the more devoted to doing the things for the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord. Making the offering to the Lord morning and evening. I think certainly something we can learn from here is if fear begins to set in with all that's going on in our world, world draw close to the Lord. Continue to, to worship the Lord. Exercise your faith in the Lord. Faith and fear are mutually ex- exclusive. You're not going to have fear if you have faith. But if you're, if you're not in faith in your God, then there's going to be fearful in all sorts of things. Verse 4. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long celebration wherein God's people took time to remember His faithfulness to them as they made their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. Verse 5. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. The altar was set up. The feasts were being observed. The offerings were being made, but there was no foundation yet for the temple. Notice in the order of that, because this is the model we find in scriptures. They were worshiping the Lord before there was a building. See, people do not worship God because they built a building. People build a building because they worship God. I think there's an important distinction there. Moses and the children of Israel worshiped the Lord before they built the tabernacle. Solomon worshiped the Lord before he built the temple. The people of Israel here, they're worshiping the Lord before they rebuilt the the new temple. Again, true worship begins individually in our hearts. The building is just a place for us to gather so we can worship corporately together. And it's a privilege. Obviously, it's a privilege. We know that. You know, I mean, we couldn't be doing what we're doing now in in China or or Iran. Well, verse 7. 
They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and, and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. See, once they had established themselves as worshiper, worshippers, then it was time, hey, let's get started building the temple. So they hired stone workers and masons and woodworkers and, and, and as well as spending money on wood imported from Lebanon. They also gave money. Those that couldn't provide the, you know, the, the, the material needs, they, hey, you know, I, I, all I can do is, is, is help support financially. We know that it was an expensive building project. Where did all that money come from? Remember back in chapter 1, Cyrus simply told the people that they were supposed to help finance the relocation of the captive Jews. And he also said that they could give, in chapter 1 verse 4, a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Free will offering is, that, is an offering given voluntarily, handed over willingly. Then again in chapter 2 verse 68, we read, Some of the heads of the Father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. So again, what we have here is those with giving hearts, not only money, but, but volunteer labor as well. I just love this because they're just willing, they just want to give for the project. They weren't coerced, they weren't, you know, uh, made to feel guilty, they weren't manipulated, they weren't prodded. You know, they didn't do a capital campaign, as I talked about on Sunday. They didn't put a, you know, a thermometer out in front of one of their tents and, you know, looking to raise money. It was a free will offering. Paul the Apostle followed this model with the Corinthians saying in 2 Corinthians 9-7, So that each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is where I believe that many churches and ministries fail to follow the biblical model. It's not wrong to let people know that they can give or that there is a need, but it's wrong to force them out of guilt or condemnation into giving. Besides, if God is building the project, He's providing for the project. Where God guides, God provides. Well, verse 8. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Jerubbabel, the son of Sheltael, Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Yeshua, with his sons and brothers, Kadmael with his sons and the sons of Judah rose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and the brethren, the Levites. Now it wasn't until the second month of the second year that we read that the work on the temple itself began. Why, why the, the delay? Why did it take so long? Well, they, they needed for one thing to get settled in their respective cities. They needed to get there and, and, and get their house in order. And for another, after they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, it would be winter. So it's not right time for building it. So the work seemed to be delayed, but they were not deterred from it. They gave regularly and generously towards it. They planned and prepared for it. I think the same way, the same thing happens in our lives spiritually. God is doing a work in our lives. It can be compared to a building project. And Jesus, He laid the foundation when He saved you. And he promises to complete that work that he began in you. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be problems in, in construction. <laughs> We're all a work in progress. Sometimes we might need, you know, a tap upside our heads or maybe a little tightening in some areas of our lives. Because we're all a work in progress. But that shouldn't deter us. It shouldn't discourage us. Because as far as our spiritual lives are concerned, we're not to let our physical lives get in the way. 
You have the Jews here at homes to build and cities to establish. They had crops to plant and livestock to feed and tend. Life was breaking out all around them, but they didn't let that interfere with their spiritual rebuilding. They kept it in perspective. Don't be deterred. They didn't get discouraged. Not yet, at least. Look at verses 10 through 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard or far off. Uh, This is one of my favorite scenes in Scripture because it's so true to life today. You had a, a group of people that are really excited about what God is doing. Verse 11, the people shouted with great shout, with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was, was laid. But despite everything that was going on, there were those who was the, the discouragers, you know, who were being discouraging, the complainers, the half, the glass half empty, you know, people instead of the glass half full people. And I've seen, uh, Many wonderful things that God has done in, in, in ministry here at Calvary for the last 20 years and being a pastor. But I've also seen and heard over the years those discouragers. You know, those have had their own ideas, what, what we ought to, we ought to do this. And when it doesn't pan out, you know, to their plans, then comes discouraged, disgruntled believers. Why can't we do Why don't we do that? We need to do that. And, and this is complaining going on and it leads to division. Discouragement is a greater foe than you may think. I think by far it's one of the greater arsenals that the devil has to use against us you know it's his nuclear weapon if you will and what makes it even more dangerous is that we don't fear it as we should i think discouragement has brought many christians down more than all the other sins combined you see discouragement is the climate within so many other sins get committed and i think one of the biggest reasons people get discouraged is because of comparisons what we're reading here we read in verse 12 that many of the old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid. They're comparing it to the original temple and they're going, oh man. Comparison really is a route to discouragement. We can fall prey to it as a church and individually. Maybe you compare yourself to someone who's being more successful or, 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 or seems to be happier or healthier or wealthier. Perhaps they're more successful in both worldly and spiritual standards. Maybe compare, well, this church is doing this and, 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 and we're not doing it. You get discouraged. Someone said, if the grass looks greener on the other side, check their water bill. Listen, think of it in terms of, of, of you know, great art. Let's talk about music, you know. Is Beethoven greater than Mozart? Well, uh, you can argue one way or the other. You can try and figure it all out. But, but when you're done, they're both masterpieces. I mean, these guys are incredible. You see, comparison only robs each of them of their own intrinsic beauty. So important that we don't compare ourselves with anyone else other than Jesus Christ. Because that's where you get the true glimpse of who we really are of ourselves. 
When, it, when, it, when we compare ourselves to Jesus, it brings us right back to the place where he wants us to be, that of humility. And that humility brings unity. And, and, and it may not seem like it, you may not feel like it, you probably don't look like it, but understand each of us are a masterpiece in the making. God's word says so. We're all under construction. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Work in progress. Well, now we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we can see a parallel in our own lives from the dangers that come our way as we continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord and the attacks that come into our lives and seek to bring us down. I think there's about four or five of them here, but one of the biggest attacks spiritually that we face after we come to, to Christ uh, is spiritual harassment. You know, you come to Christ and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're not, not partying with the guys as you used to. You're not, not living this life that you used to. And all of a sudden, they go, what's wrong with you? Oh, you're holier than now. And, and then you get this attitude. We should expect it. In fact, Peter or Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not you might. There's a good chance. No, if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. You know, I think you discover, we discover early on in our walk to the Lord that we have adversaries out there who want to seek to harass us and, and, and try to stop our spiritual progress. And that's what we're seeing here in the beginning part of chapter 4. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. Okay, so first of foremost, we see that there's adversaries. So that's a reminder that we are in a spiritual warfare. Now normally when we think of spiritual warfare, our minds pictures you know, images of, of devils and, and of demons. And Ephesians 6.12 does say, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But what we need to understand is that they usually manifest themselves through ordinary people. People you go to work with, people you go to school with, your neighbor, even perhaps someone you live with if you're married to a non-Christian. See, these returnees who were rebuilding the temple were opposed by their neighbors. Why would we not think that we would be too? Now, who were these adversaries that they're talking about here? Who were the Jews' adversaries? Well, they were the Samaritans. See, many years earlier, the ten northern tribes had been carried off to Assyria. Assyrians, in turn, took up residence in the land vacated by the ten tribes. But when the mountain lions began to wipe out the Assyrians, they sent a message back to Assyria saying, send, send back some of the priests to help us worship the God of this land. We're getting eaten alive by these lions. God is punishing us. 2 Kings 17.25 So the certain priests were sent back. They built altars to Jehovah, but the people continued to be compromised by serving Jehovah and continuing to worship the God of the Assyrians. So as you read verse 1 here, it's not by chance that as the spiritual adversaries coming against the Jews, the first attack would be that of compromise. Compromise. Get you to, to compromise on what God has called you to do. Look at verses 2 and 3. They came to Jerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Hayden, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, house of Israel, said to them, 
You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. First attack was compromise. Now, again, as I said, usually if you're a new believer, man, that's going to be the, the, the attack that's going to come your way. Oh, come on. One drink. What's it going to hurt? Who will know? Come on, it's just a little fudging on your numbers, on your taxes. No big deal. Everybody has 60 dependents. Just write it down there. The leaders of Israel recognized that they were asking them to compromise their faith to include other gods and other beliefs. Couldn't do it. See, Christianity is often criticized for being too narrow-minded. How could Jesus be the only way to God? How can be, he can be the only truth? How, how is it you can only find eternal life in Jesus? Because that's what he said. <laughs> I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So he's a liar, a lunatic, or he is a Lord, someone to be trusted. Yeah, Christianity may be exclusive. But understand, it's, it's very inclusive. All men everywhere can be saved if they come through, by grace through faith in the promised Savior in Jesus Christ. Now, as we see these inhabitants approach Zerubbabel and, and, and ask if they might help build the temple, they say, hey, we're just like you and we seek your God and we've been sacrificing him to, since the days of a serious king. And, and the Jews are being asked to partner together with these people who claim to know God, but, but they didn't approach God on the same terms as the Jews here did. Again, they were asking to, to compromise for the sake of unity. And you can't do that. You know, we're in the same boat today. To compromise for the sake of unity and tolerance. The pressure always is as a church for us to be united with any group or any church that, that, that well, we believe in Jesus. Well, the Mormons say they believe in Jesus. As do the Jehovah Witnesses. But it's a different Jesus that we believe in. There are churches today that believe in Jesus, but teach you can be redeemed of your sin, not only through Jesus, but also through her, his earthly mother Mary. There are homosexual churches who claim Christ, yet preach love and tolerance instead of holiness. I read of a, a group called the Rastafarians who smoke marijuana and preach that Jesus is one of many incarnations of God. <laughs> so you're going, oh, well, we need to be in unity with these other churches. No, you don't. Well, they're, they're seeking God. No, they're not really seeking God. They're not, not the same God that we worship. That's why Paul says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Well, how can you tell if they're an unbeliever? You know, the name of the name of Jesus. Well, I can tell because I know what the Bible says. Paul called those who legalistically put more requirements on salvation than simple faith in Christ false brethren in Galatians 2.4. Jews said that those who claim to be Christians that practice sin in the name of grace deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, Jude 1.4. So here is Jerubabel and Yeshua told them pointedly, you have nothing in common with us, we're not compromising. Well, the attacks continue. Look at verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the enemy loves to attack, attack us on the inside, and he can do it personally, or he can do it, you know, psychologically. He can try to infiltrate our ranks to dress up as a wolf in sheep's clothing and attack from the inside, or he can stand on the outside and cause us to be our own worst enemy. See, since they weren't able to get in personally, they attacked psychologically. They did this by focusing on three areas, discouragement, fear, and frustration. Verse 4 says, they discouraged the people of Judah. 
That this word discourage there means to, to sink down, let drop, abandon, be disheartened. They, they, they attacked in such a way as to cause them to lose heart, to just give up. Listen, I've learned over the years that when you are, I feel like just giving up or bailing out, you can rest assured that it's the enemy that's attacking you. It's he's coming against you. As I said already, I think discouragement is one of the most potent weapons that, that can be leveled against a believer. And if you give in to discouragement, it makes you much more susceptible to the other sins. But there's, there's another adversary in verse 4. It says, they troubled them in building. The, word, uh, the words mean that they frightened them. Or literally, they, they terrorized them. I mean, they were their terrorists coming against them. I mean, you thought we were the only ones dealing with, with terrorism. This goes way back. Listen, there's something, there's today something that Satan understands that we need to as well. You and I have a spiritual fear factor, and the devil knows what it is. He will manipulate people and circumstances to tap into your fear factor, to try and terrorize you. Well, what if that happens? Well, I don't know, I never thought about that. And he's trying to get you to be afraid, become fearful. Something might, might happen, or you'll lose something or someone, if you press forward in your walk with God. These adversaries made the people afraid to build, terrified of what would happen if they continued. Again, when we stop doing the work of the ministry because of fear or anxiety, we need to recognize that that's too an attack of the enemy. And we need to trust in the Lord. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So we see the enemy is attacking through compromise, trying to attack through discouragement, through fear. The fourth attack is through division. Look again at verse 5. Read that the adversary hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. The term frustrate their purpose means to, to break, split, or divide their, their counsel or purpose. In other words, try and bring division within the people. Hey, you know, I heard so-and-so said this. Or so-and-so said that. Well, I heard so-and-so say this. Well, I don't think. How could they say that? They're just, just bringing this division in. It's such an effective method that the enemy uses to divide and conquer. Sometimes it's over things that are very ridiculous, you know. Oh, we're going to replace the carpeting in the church. Well, half the church wants blue carpeting and the other half wants red carpeting. The enemy whispers in your ear, well, it's God's will to have blue carpeting. <laughs> well, my friends think we should have red. Well, your friends are wrong. Who do they think? They're colorblind. What's wrong with them? You know, no way. Yes, and you get this fight over something ridiculous. I heard of a church that, that I shared this before that, that argued for four hours in a, in a church business meeting over what kind of flowers should be on a, on a little table behind the pulpit. Four hours over flowers. It's ridiculous. You see, when stuff like that goes on, you can be assured that the enemy is working and he has won the victory. The only solution is to listen to God's appointed leader, which is Zerubbabel. God raised him up to lead them, so whatever color carpet he decides, man, we're behind it 100%. Well, before we see our next adversary, I need to explain what's going on in this next section of verses. Verses 6 to 23 are not in chronological order with verses 1 through 5. They're like a, a parenthesis or a footnote inserted in between verses 5 and 24. 
See, the authors have been describing their current trouble with, while Cyrus was king of Persia. But in this parenthesis, you'll read about the successors of Cyrus, Asherus, Artaxerxes, and Darius. And these verses cover the whole period of time that is described in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, why give the whole story of the troubles? Because there, there were additional adversaries that they faced, and he wanted to list them all at once, to keep it all, all together while he's still on that subject. He's writing a spiritual history here, not just a literal one. And so he recognizes it and brings it to our attention. The next adversary they faced was accusations. Look at verse 6 and 7. In the reign of Hezekiah, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, also, Bishlam, Mithredath, Tabel, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Aramaic was a universal language everyone spoke in order to communicate. The point is that the letters were written to both of Cyrus's successors, accusing these returnees of just horrible, terrible things. Look at verses 8-10. through 10. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the, the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the, the Danites and the, those guys, and the Tarpalites, the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan, the Dehavites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. See, the enemy was attacking on the outside. Now they're going to start attacking on the inside. Remember that they couldn't attack militarily for the builders had a decree from Cyrus, king of, of Persia, but they could work to get that decree reversed. So they're sending out this letter. Letter of accusation. Maybe you've had emails sent to you accusing you of things before, you know, things posted on social media attacking you because of your faith in Christ, accusing you of things that just weren't true. Well, here it was in verse 11 for these Jews looking to do a work for the Lord. It came in form of a letter. Look at verses 11 through 16. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. Gosh. Now, understand that the letter said that the very people who were rebuilding Jerusalem... They had been rebellious and had caused trouble in the past. Okay, that's a true statement. <laughs> that's actually what happened. They rebelled against the king of Assyria in 2 Kings 18.7. They rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, 2 Kings 24.1. All of these things would have been easily found in the records and verified. But the letter goes on to say that if Jerusalem was rebuilt, that they would, they would not pay their taxes and they would be ripping off the king and his empire. How could they know that? I mean, they couldn't. 
See, they're just bringing out false accusations, trying to, to, to run them down. Because they'd begun their letter with a little bit of truth to establish it. We got a little bit of truth there, but then they came in with this, this speculation and false accusation. But now they're taking it all as fact. Listen, this is something that we need to be aware of because it's so prevalent in the church today. When someone comes to you bearing some truth, our tendency is to believe the whole story. Wow, I can't believe that. Listen, a proverb to live by is Proverbs 18:17. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. Or the New Living Translation, the first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. So easy to believe the story you've been given because, hey, they're my friend. Why would they lie to me? But remember, they don't have to be lying to present a lie. From their perspective, this is what happened. This is what will take place. And they believe it with all their heart, but that doesn't make it true. I think of our liberal friends today, you know, the far left. I mean, they believe it with all their hearts, but, but the stuff they believe is not true. And they're, they're down this path. They talked about this night at men's study. They're just following this path down and just riding this wave, and they don't even know it, but they're standing firm on it. See, what I'm saying is we shouldn't take accusations at face value, especially when they assume to know the motives of another or are speculating on the future actions of someone else. It's God who knows the hearts and the minds of men. Only the Lord who knows a person's motives and future actions. But understand, that's a tool of the enemy. I mean, the devil is the, the labeled the accuser of the brethren. And he can get people all caught up in accusing one another. And one of the things he likes most is to accuse believers of past sins. Oh, I can't believe you did that. And, 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 but also he accuses of present shortcomings as well. And we can get crippled by the accusations of others. We get wounded. We don't want to be treated that way. And we think we're being misunderstood. But they said this about me, and they said that about me. So what? Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. See, the solution is not to get even or wait for justification or to wait for someone to prove these accusations are wrong or to quit and give up and get discouraged. Sometimes the right thing to do is just move on. Or to quote a famous movie, let it go, you know. A couple of movies use that. Indiana, let it go. Or the snow movie, let it go. It's not always important to be right as it is to do the right thing. The Jews didn't do the right thing and they allowed discouragement, fear, division, false accusation to stop them of the work they were supposed to be doing. So the king sends an answer. Look at verses 17 to 24. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria and to the remainder beyond the river. Peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that the city in the former times has revolted against kings, and rebellions and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and customs were paid to them. Now I give the command to make these men cease, that the city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now, when the copy of the King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehem, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. I mean, they, they, they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, yeah, it's true. Now, without even looking to find out what's going on, and they come back with it. Oh, I've got the letter. You guys need to stop. Look at verse 24. Thus the work of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
That first word of verse 24 is thus, which can also be translated then, which is the then right after verse 5. So, so verse 5 through 24, there's that section I was telling you about that described, you know, as, as the, the, the kings changed, changed the authority over there. Remember verse 5 said they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. And verses 6 to 23 tells us how they did that. Verse 24 tells us the result. The work stopped. You see, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin had the law on their side. They stopped the work of rebuilding the temple for 16 years. Which tells me that though the attacks of compromise didn't work, discouragement did, fear did, division did, and, and attributed to them halting the project and not starting again until, as chapter 5 tells us, Haggai and Zechariah stirred them up to continue. Folks, we need to understand that the enemy is working full time to try to stop the work of God in our lives personally, in our lives corporately as a church. He doesn't want the temple of God to be built in your life personally. He doesn't want the church to be built up in our life together. We need to recognize his attacks. And they'll try to infiltrate our ranks. They'll try to discourage us, to frighten us, to divide us, to falsely accuse us. He's the accuser of the brethren. Or the last thing you'll do is to get us so comfortable we won't want to do anything. I've shared this before. Satan is never too busy to rock the cradle of a sleeping Christian. See, here the, the Jews, have, they've gotten comfortable. and They lived in their panel houses and they were pursuing the American dream in the Middle Eastern style. You know, faced with all the other adversaries that gave in to them and, and just pursued their own comfort for some 16 years. Call it materialism, call it worldliness, but it went on for 16 years. I think that can happen to our lives spiritually as well, where we don't want to sacrifice our comfort in order to make spiritual progress. But it's the same adversary we face. We get comfortable in our walk with the Lord, in our church, in our work. We're no longer allowing God to do that work of, of building us up or growing us. But you see, when the enemy of God managed to put a stop to the work of God, there must be a way to get it started again. If a Christian is knocked down, there must be a way to get him back up on his feet. If a marriage is split apart, there has to be a way to bring it back together. And if we can learn from scriptures how this is done, the devil would have significantly fewer victories in the church and Christians' lives and, and marriages and ministries. Look at the first couple of verses in chapter 5 just to see how these two prophets got things started again. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now the key here that we see in these few verses is that there were two prophets who managed to get things going again. They prophesied in the name of the God of Israel. It's interesting to me that we looked at this on Sunday, if you were here on Sunday. Zechariah received Ten visions from the Lord. And we looked at the seventh vision that he had. Our verse for the year that God used to encourage the Jews to keep building the temple. To not let the attack slow them down, but to get up and get moving again. What was that verse? Zechariah 4, 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Man, you want to get going again? It's not by your power, it's not by your might, but it's by my Holy Spirit. You trust in me, you rely on my power, and you'll get things going again. I pointed this out on Sunday. There are three ways in which we can go about trying to accomplish God's work. We can trust in our own strength and wisdom. Number two, we can borrow the resources of the world. 
Or number three, we can depend on the Spirit of God. Only way for success is depending upon the leading and guiding of God's Holy Spirit continually every single day of our lives. And I think as we close, that it's important that we understand what, what the Lord is saying here. We can be attacked with these same things, discouragement and fear and division and, and, and comfortableness. But the bottom line is we must look to the Lord. We must look to the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. And understand, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And no weapon formed against you can prosper as long as we're walking in the Spirit, trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ, allowing Him to do that work in us and through us by the Spirit of God. See, here's the solution. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray.